Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Greetings, fellow time travelers. As always, it's a joy to have you with me for the journey through space and time to help support the making of this podcast and as a collateral benefit to get extra content every week, sign up to my patreon.com site. As a member, you get access to a weekly question and answer session. Uh, I answer questions from fellow travellers about everything, anything, history, archaeology, current affairs, politics, you name it, anything. Everything's up for grabs. And we run competitions with prizes and you get access to my weekly monologues where I lay out how I'm feeling about everything that's going on. And, well, if you go to the patreon.com site, Look for me by name, follow the instructions, part with a little bit of cash, you can pay monthly or annually, and you become part of the family. Like-minded people with a love of history and questions they want answered. Okay, now it's time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next step in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Mathematics. The language, the universe speaks. His elegant equations are amongst the most beautiful ever written. As soon as he could speak, he began asking questions about the world around him. His theory that electricity, light and magnetism are all manifestations of the same phenomenon powered all of the science that came after him, paving the way for the invention of radio, television, radar, mobile telephony and the internet. He truly was a man, perhaps the man who changed everything. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning Neil. In last week's episode it was 1863 and we sat down with you in a London tavern as the rules of the beautiful game were set in stone. Where and when are we this week? Hi Paul, hi fellow time travellers. Yes, last week we delved into the ancient roots of association football, or soccer, as they like to call it in the rest of the world. In this episode, we're travelling to Edinburgh. It's the latter part of the 19th century, and we're meeting a scientist who has now largely been forgotten, especially in his homeland. But for the science cognoscenti, he is one of the three pillars of modern physics. There's Isaac Newton before him, and Albert Einstein after. We're here to meet James Clark Maxwell, the man who saw light for what it is. We are towards the middle of the second half of the 19th century. 1865 is a kind of a notional date to put on it. The love letter this week orbits around 
a Scottish scientist called James Clark Maxwell. He occupies a strange space in the story of scientific endeavour uh, because while he's, he's worshipped by the scientific community, physicists to be precise, and he's well known in other parts of the world. His name is remembered on a mountain on, I think it's Mars, <laughs> something was named after him. But in the UK, and, and certainly in his birthplace of Scotland, he was born in Edinburgh, he's largely overlooked, which is extraordinary when you begin to come to terms with the contribution that he has made to the modern world. Relatively recently, well, I mean, within the last 15 to 20 years, I'm not quite sure when, there's now a statue, there's a big bronze statue of a seated, seated on a throne style James Clark Maxwell, at the end of, I think it's George Street in Edinburgh. So he, he gazes down upon the traffic. But that's a relatively recent addition. In many respects, he's kind of unknown and really does not get the the fame, the, the posthumous fame that he's really deserving of. And if you haven't heard of him before, by the time you get to the end of this one, it will amaze you that his name is not on everyone's lips, as a, almost as a kind of a scientific cliché like an Einstein or a, a Newton or, or, a, or, or, or a Feynman or whatever, from within the pantheon. He lived and died in the 19th century. He was born in 1831 in Edinburgh. He died in 1879. He was only 48 when he died. Again, when you, when you begin to come to terms with the contribution that he made and actually continues to make to science, because such was his brilliance that... Modern day physicists and the rest are still coming to a more complete realization of what his contribution actually means. It, it, it's the gift that keeps on giving, really, James Clark Maxwell's understanding of the universe. Died at 48, you know, just, well, to someone aged 56, for example, as I am. It sounds like a youngster. He was mostly, although he was born in, in the city of Edinburgh, he was his family moved. He was quite well-to-do people. And his family moved to Glenlayer, which is a dot on the map in Kirkubrishire, which is very pretty countryside in the southwest of Scotland. Kirkubri is a, a, a town that I knew quite well growing up in Dumfries. That really was his stamping ground as he was growing up. And I'm sure all of that, most of that, is unfamiliar to anyone, along with his name. We've talked in the love letters over the months about how some of the ancients, and I'm talking here about, you know, like the Buddha uh, and Lao Tzu in China uh, and others, have from time to time experienced, let's say, the intimation that all things are one. They have had this kind of cosmic consciousness about the connectedness, the interconnectedness of all things, that all things are one. And down through the millennia, individuals from time to time, like pinpricks of light in an otherwise dark sky, they, oh, they have this realisation. And in different ways down through the millennia, different individuals have had that experience and have sought to express it in one way or another. Obviously, when it came to someone like the Buddha, uh, 
his understanding manifests itself in a religion for affecting the lives of billions of people, but it had different consequences for different people. In the, the Hindu worldview, which is, a, which is more than a religion, it's a, it's a way of life that originates in, this, in the subcontinent, but the Hindu worldview is, as far as we can tell, in a, in a, in a consistent, ongoing way, it's older than most, and it goes further than most in the direction of declaring that interconnectedness of everything. And it's well expressed, for example, uh, in the Upanishads, which is ancient Hindu revered text. It deals with the Brahman. Now, Brahman is a is a difficult it's a difficult concept, really. Brahman is neither neither male nor female, but both, but also everything else. Brahman uh, is the ultimate reality, I suppose. That which never changes in and of itself, but but which is simultaneously the cause of all change. So Br- Brahman's a big concept, and in the Upanishads we read, "It is made. This is the Brahman. It is made of consciousness and mind. It is made of life and vision. It is made of the earth and the waters. It is made of air and space. It is made of light and darkness. It is made of desire and peace." It is made of anger and love. It is made of virtue and vice. It is made of all that is near. It is made of all that is afar. It is made of all is Brahman. And that huge, (laughs) to put it mildly, all-encompassing, overarching idea comes and goes. It, It comes to individuals and then, you know, like a spark that is that briefly is there and then goes out, it it, it passes away again. Like crests and troughs in a wave form, you know, it's, it's up and then it's down, it's up and then it's down. It's been one of our species traveling companions, fellow travelers forever. And very, very late in the day, you know, what we experience or what we know as the scientific method of observation and experimentation and so on and so on, even the scientific method in its own turn has begun to stumble upon, you might say, or, or to appreciate the interconnectedness of all things. Because that idea is, is there like Brahman. It's forever. Albert Einstein, now there's a name, unlike James Clark Maxwell, everyone's heard of Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein tried and failed to unite disparate phenomena. Everything that he was aware of, he tried to coalesce, to bring together, to crystallise in one. He was aware of the necessity of oneness. And Einstein, amongst others, wanted a theory of everything which I suppose you might say would be like a few lines of maths, a few lines of mathematics that would somehow bring everything together and and make sense of everything, a theory of everything, a TOE. But he couldn't. It was beyond Einstein. Uh, and Isaac Newton before him, Another there's another name, everyone's heard of Isaac Newton. He was in that same mind space of knowing that Everything that he was aware of affected everything else. 
And so he was able to show, for example, to be a bit more specific, I suppose, that the same force that, that attracts an apple to the centre of the earth, you know, we experience that as the apple falling from a tree onto the ground, but it's being pulled towards the centre of the earth. Uh, uh, Newton realised that that force was the same force that held planets and stars in their orbits. So that that which was affecting the, the, the smallest and the most inconsequential was also e extending its, its consequences and its effect to the greatest and the largest. Immanuel Kant, philosopher, another name familiar to more people than that of James Clark Maxwell. Kant, who was a central, uh, a pivotal figure of the Enlightenment thinking, so-called, of the 18th century, Kant proposed in the same vein that all knowledge is relative, that we know and can know nothing about things unless and other than by appreciating the relationship to everything else. You can't take anything and understand it. It's meaningless unless you're seeing it as part of the one. John Muir, another legend or iconic figure, he, uh, obviously he was a champion of nature, He's certainly credited with, although he didn't do it on his own, he's, he's certainly credited with championing the, the National Parks movement in the United States of America. He was another Scot, but his family moved to North America when he was 11 or 12 years old, and he lived, you know, he lived out the rest of his life as an American. And John Muir, in trying to come to an understanding of the natural world, he found other words for the same thought. He said, John Muir said, that when you try to pick out anything by itself, you find it hitched to everything else in the universe. You, know, you try to pick up a leaf or a drop of water. You, it, it, it's all part of everything else. So, you know, I've, I've already name-checked them, but in modern science, uh, there are three figures who serve as a kind of holy trinity. At one end, the earliest of them is Isaac Newton, and at the other side is Albert Einstein. But in the middle, overlooked somehow, is James Clark Maxwell, who, within the world of science, physics, maths, by the cognoscenti, he's understood to matter as much as Newton and Einstein, but in this strange way, he's, he's not so well known, not by any stretch of the imagination. And a really good book, I have it up, up there somewhere, by a guy called Basil Mahan, who's a scientist and also a, a researcher and writer, a sort of historian of science at the same time, and he wrote this lovely book. It's a relatively slim volume called The Man Who Changed Everything, The Life of James Clark Maxwell. And he said, quote, In 1861, James Clark Maxwell had a scientific idea that was as profound as any work of philosophy, as beautiful as any painting, and more powerful than any act of politics or war. Nothing would be the same again. Right, so there's a good taster for how significant James Clark Maxwell's work was. The other truth about James Clark Maxwell is that, it, it, in, I suppose in some respects, it might explain why he's overlooked. In his time, the, the light of understanding that was emanating from him was too bright for his contemporaries to look at. He was a way ahead of them. And, and it's almost as though like a cloaking device or the way in which like a stealth aircraft kind of like, you can't see it because of the, 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 the cloaking on it. It's almost as though 
what he was emanating made it impossible to look at him. You can't see him. He's almost made invisible by his own brilliance in a, a strange, topsy-turvy way. And the quote there from Basil Mann is, dates to 1861, but it's, it's difficult, actually, to get to, in terms of a love letter that tries to pinpoint moments of significance, this is one of those that it's quite hard to pin down exactly when the moment affected James Clark Maxwell. But it may have been 1861, it may have been 1865, it's hard to say. But what he had realised, what he realised in that moment, this is what changes everything, was that electricity, light and magnetism are all manifestations of the same phenomenon. Now, that's hard. That's hard to take in. And it was impossible for his contemporaries to take on either, even though they what of this of a similar mindset to him M- maths is the language that nature speaks and if you don't speak it if you don't speak maths like i don't speak maths and, and few of us do and we certainly don't have the fluency of someone like james clark maxwell or newton or einstein then you're effectively cut off from a lot of understanding but when it comes to james clark maxwell's contribution i find it helps to come at his central point by noticing something as simple as ice, water and steam are all manifestations of the same thing. Ice is solid, water's liquid, steam's a gas. But they are all at the same time and always at the same they're the same thing in different forms. And that's what James Clark Maxwell realised about electricity, light and magnetism. The same and not the same. And Back to Basil Mann, there's a, another a line that I've lifted out. The theory, this is to say Maxwell's theory, predicted that every time a magnet jiggled or an electric current changed, a wave of energy would spread out into space like a ripple on a pond. Maxwell calculated the speed of the waves and it turned out to be the very speed at which light had been measured. You know, so, what's that? 186,000 miles per second if I throw my mind back to primary school. Scientists had long predicted, before Maxwell had his revelation, scientists had predicted a link between the electricity that they knew how to generate. They they didn't then, and scientists still don't know what electricity is. They just find it. They know how to make it happen. But they they don't know... No one knows what electricity actually is. It's very hard to describe it. But they had sensed, intuited a link between the electricity they could generate and the magnetism, another force, that they could feel. But the nature of the connection was beyond them. They knew there was something bridging, uniting, but they couldn't couldn't work out how and why. But Maxwell did. Back to Mahan, a third and final quote. At a stroke, he had united electricity, magnetism and light. Moreover, visible light was only a small band in a vast range of possible waves which all travelled at the same speed but vibrated at different frequencies. Now, I I freely admit even that sentence in plain English is slightly beyond me. I've read it and reread it and I don't quite get it, but I I, I catch something. I, 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 I grasp at and sense the outside edge of understanding. And in any event... 
James Clerk Maxwell, who spoke the language of maths, which is the language that nature speaks, put it down, crystallised it in some lines of mathematics, some equations. And these, you can have a look at them. <laughs> for, for all the good it'll do you, unless you're some kind of mathematical savant. But they're regarded by those who speak the language as some of the most beautiful mathematics ever written by anyone, ever. And the problem, again, it goes, to a thing I suspect, to partly explaining his relative anonymity, is he was way ahead of his time. He was certainly way beyond his contemporaries. He was, he was standing up in lecture theatres and delivering this, and the brightest of the bright who were around him were struggling to... They couldn't keep up with him. He was like a time traveller, his fellow traveller, fellow time traveller. And it was as though he had come from the future to describe to a steam-powered world a portable nuclear reactor. It was that kind of quantum leap. Well, it's beyond my comprehension, and frankly it's beyond the comprehension of most. At least we can acknowledge without understanding why, that Maxwell's maths is foundational for radio, for television, for mobile telephony, and even for the interconnectedness of the internet. It's all made possible by, it's not possible without, James Clark Maxwell. When the tech was put in place, when they had the undersea cables, you know, taking, you know, telegraphy under the sea between, like, Europe and North America, they couldn't work out how to charge people for the service. So how do we put a value on this? We're going to enable this for people. Well, they went to James Clark Maxwell, and he came up with the, I don't know, the equation. So there, there were applications both um, quasi-spiritual and also mundane that came out of James Clark Maxwell's genius. It's, you can sum it up, really. It's there in the title of Basil Mann's book. He changed everything. He simply changed everything. And there's a story, an anecdote. Do you know what anecdote means? Uh, it, it's Greek. It it's two words. It, anecdotus. It means unpublished. That's all it means. So, like, when you hear a doctor talking in the present day, a physician about certain things, and they say, oh, that's just anecdotal, it just means it hasn't been published in one of their journals yet. As soon as something that people are talking about gets published in a journal, it becomes fact. When people are only saying it to one another, it's anecdotal. But anyway, there's this story that quite late in his career, quite late in his life, Albert Einstein was offered yet another award, this time from Edinburgh University. And ideally they wanted him to come and get it. They wanted him to come and receive the honour in, in person. He's in America, but they wanted him to come. And initially, well, you can imagine he's probably getting a lot of these offers all the time. And he, he replied and said, well, it's a lovely honour, but I can't, I'm not going to come to Edinburgh. But then he wrote, then some, some little time elapsed and he got back in touch with them because he had realised something. And he said, I will come, I will be there in person, but the condition is that in, the, in that lecture theatre, you have to lift all the, on the stage that I'm going to be on, Take away all the, the the floor covering, whatever, carpet, linoleum, whatever, back to the wooden boards because I want to know before I die that I have trod the same boards 
as James Clark Maxwell because he realised that it was his lecture theatre that the award was going to be offered in. That's what he mattered. Because Einstein, Einstein acknowledged openly that he had had to stand on Maxwell's shoulders to see relativity. That without the work done by Maxwell before him, he'd never have been up high enough to see towards his theories of relativity. That's how much he mattered. And Einstein said of Maxwell, one scientific epoch ended and another began with James Clark Maxwell. And that's the words of Einstein. And then an American physicist that I've already name-checked, Richard Feynman, who was himself uh, a recipient of the Nobel Prize for physics, he said in his own time, from the long view of the history of mankind seen from, say, 10,000 years from now, there can be little doubt that the most significant event of the 19th century will be judged as Maxwell's discovery of the laws of electromagnetism. So, isn't that amazing, though? When you when you when now that, when you know that that his name just doesn't trip off the tongue in the way that Newton or Einstein's do does. Another thing that's really remarkable about him, to, to some extent, because I'm the way I am, which is to say, not a scientist and incapable of thinking in his realms something that I find most enjoyable about the story of James Clark Maxwell is apparently he was a really nice guy you, you know genius would appear to be a difficult burden to carry the true geniuses are often conflicted and they're often awkward men and women you know that Richard Feynman he was definitely difficult if you read into Feynman his relationships with people and well challenging Isaac Newton modern people have looked back at the way in which Newton was described by those who knew him as a friend and they've come to the conclusion that Newton might have been on the the autistic spectrum although I tend to suspect that that's I'm sure that comes from a place of jealousy really I think people look on it elevated understanding of the sort that Newton had of the universe and they have to find some kind of slightly insulting way to explain it so they say that he was autistic but I suspect they might just be labeling him because they need to put him in a box that they can feel superior to but everything you read about James Clark Maxwell has it that you can't find anyone that had a bad word to say about him even people who were his well his rivals, I suppose, you know, people that were in the same field. No one had a bad word to say about him. He was charming. He was close to his family all his life, all their lives. He was close to his father, close to his mother. He was close to all those, um, you know, that, he, that he'd grown up around. Glen Lair, the, the, the place where he grew up in the countryside, he would go back as often as possible, often every year, to take part in the harvest. He would go back and and work on the land and just be just be one of the one of that community. He had friends that he made in childhood that he maintained remained close to for the whole of his life. More than one person described him as self-deprecating. You know, he didn't take himself seriously. He acknowledged his own mistakes in his work, and he was also tolerant of mistakes made by other people in theirs. He was just a charmer. So, as well as everything else, he was good company and 
a pleasure to be around, which just takes him to another level. When he was a wee, like a toddler, he was like two and three, from, from he could speak, he was constantly asking questions of everything. And when, whenever he saw anything, especially something that moved, I mean, and it could be anything. It could have been, you know, it could have been a piece of equipment, something mechanical, or it could be just like a flicker of light moving across a wall or, you know, a mobile, you know, above his cot or something with reflected light on it. Anything like that, anything that caught his eye, he would say, what's the go of that? You know, meaning, meaning, what's making that happening? Why is that doing that? And, you know, his parents and everyone, anyone else would try and answer the question. But because he was James Clark Maxwell, even though he was only two or three, he was too much to handle. And so the question, the answer would never satisfy him. So he would then say, yeah, 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 yeah. But what's the particular go of that? As in, no, you'll have to, you'll have to be much more precise. That's too vague. I need to know exactly why that is happening. He was like that from, he could speak. He's just a phenomenon in his own right. He's a phenomenon who studied phenomena and made sense of phenomena. And the truth, I think I alluded to it earlier, we are still coming to terms with Maxwell's realisations. It's still extending, even now, at the, at the bleeding edge of technology. It's still Maxwell's maths that's enabling next steps that are being taken. And... Paul Dirac, who's another of the pantheon of, of scientific gods, in an article, I think it was an interview in Scientific American, he said, it is more important to have beauty in one's equations than to have them fit experiments. And that, that's, that's quite a thing for a scientist to say. But there you go, Sit and read it again. It's more important to have beauty in one's equations than to have them fit experiment. And... It's probably the case, I would say it's the case that James Clark Maxwell's contribution to the world, the significance of his moment of revelation was that he turned a light on that enabled us to see the beauty of creation. Chronic gambler plagued by epilepsy, seizures that were terrifying, insightful and life-affirming all at the same time, struck him throughout his life. In 1849, he was convicted of circulating banned literature and sentenced to death by firing squad, stood facing the rifles with the soldiers about to pull the triggers. His sentence was commuted. He was sent to exile in Siberia. And the moment of imminent death haunted him ever after. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment podcasts every week, sign up to my neiloliverpatreon.com site. It'd be great to see you there. I have a new website address made easy for the complicated times in which we live. It's just neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for series merchandise, for t-shirts and mugs and hoodies and the rest. My Instagram account with daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. You can see the theme here and it features new films every week. 
And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening, and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.